My friends, the title of last week's sermon was Searching for a Miracle. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, we witnessed ordinary folk flocking to Jesus. Many had heard about this upstart teacher with healing capacity. Many had heard about this man with a heart of compassion and hands of care. If they could only get close to him, if Jesus could do for them what they heard he had done for others, then maybe, just maybe, he could miraculously improve their lives. People wanted healing. They were searching for a miracle. But what did Jesus do? You may recall that Jesus flipped the script. They came searching for a miracle and Jesus told them that they were a miracle. They came looking for a blessing, and he told them that they were already blessed. For blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Well, this week's lectionary lessons extend this theme. Beyond the Beatitudes, Jesus keeps on preaching. Beyond the blessings, he keeps on teaching the crowd. Beyond this revolutionary conception of God's kingdom, Jesus provides an ethical mandate to live out in Caesar's kingdom. In this gospel lesson, in the gospel lesson that was read for your hearing, pay attention to how Jesus speaks to the crowd. You are the light of the world. Don't hide it. Let your light shine. Let your light shine so that others might know your goodness and grace and the goodness and grace that comes from Almighty God. Then Jesus, he goes on to make his case about how we should treat one another in interpersonal interactions, mutual respect, kindness, compassion, and attempts at understanding even for those with whom you disagree. This, Jesus teaches, is what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus isn't being original here in Matthew 5. As a matter of fact, he admits as much because Jesus is appealing to the best of the Hebrew prophets. You've heard of Amos. You've heard of Hosea. You've heard of Jeremiah and Isaiah. These courageous freedom fighters from the 8th century before Christ's birth. These prophets that left a template for this sort of ethical teaching. This is what Jesus is appealing to here in the text. And this is what we read in the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah. It's here. It's here. The prophet begins the chapter with words of condemnation. Isaiah condemns their religiosity. Isaiah condemns their piety. The people fast and then they exploit their workers. 
They pray and then they strike each other with wicked fists. They come to the house of the Lord and then they tighten the chains of injustice. So God tells the prophet Isaiah, I want you to raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to the people their rebellion, condemn them for their wicked and unjust ways. Typically, when we think about condemnation of this sort or God condemning a community, it's directed at those who have turned away from God. Condemnation tends to be reserved for those who explicitly reject the faith. Well, this is not the case here. These people that Isaiah condemns, they're not irreligious. These people, they aren't impious, nor are these people unobservant. As a matter of fact, that would have been too easy of a critique. Contrary, these people in this text, these people were very religious. They wore it on their sleeves. And herein lies the problem. The prophet views their religion as self-serving. He regards their religion as overly self-righteous. Isaiah, he condemns an approach to the faith where our rituals and our traditions fail to move us toward greater care and compassion toward others. Isaiah, Isaiah sees their prayers as empty. Isaiah sees their rituals as self-serving, little more than selfish thoughts and veiled desires, veiled in religious garb. Oh, Isaiah said, you might impress one another. You might develop some social capital on your religious associations and your church memberships. But Isaiah is clear to the people, we are not impressed. God is not impressed. God wants us to move beyond an isolated and insular faith. Our religion should not just be about a relationship with God inside some sort of spiritual vacuum. To the contrary, the quality and texture of our faith must be defined by how we develop caring and compassionate relationships with one another. This, Isaiah tells the people, should be the measure of your faith. My dear friends, I don't mind saying this morning, I don't mind saying particularly during these scary times in which we live where it seems that our social fabrics are unraveling. I'm getting just sick and tired of watching so-called religious folk use their faith as a means to acquire worldly power. I'm sick and tired of witnessing religious groups use their faith as privileged markers of distinction and exclusion. Too many people are perverting the richness and beauty of their faith across this globe because they're using it as a weapon to bludgeon rather than a suture to heal. Any religion that cannot make us more responsible for our world, any faith that cannot make us more attuned to one another, any God that cannot make us more kind, caring, and compassionate is a God, in my view, that's not worth worshiping. 
It's a religion that's not worth having. It's a faith that's not worth sharing. It's little more than a narcissistic ideology, an egoistic agenda that consecrates our own crap. It baptizes our own bull. This, this, my friends, is why, why we've con we have to and we must continue to condemn overt declarations of piety, not just as self-serving, but as self-righteous. Because it's this self-righteousness, it's this sort of view of our faith that we have to understand that there are few things more dangerous than a self-righteous religion. Self-righteousness. This is what causes us to view evil and the source of evil as always outside of ourselves. We believe that the motives and actions of others are always evil while our motives and our actions are always pure and just. This, this level of self-righteousness, this is the problem with all forms of fundamentalism. It's the problem with all forms of extremism. It's the problem with all forms of jingoistic nationalism for privileging the humanity of any one group of people over another contradicts any idea of the parenthood of God and the siblinghood of humanity. We can never, you and I can never declare that some people are more special than others, nor can we ever act as if some deserve rights, privileges, and protections today just because they were born in Atlanta and not in Aleppo just because they were born in Washington, D.C. and not Darfur. Either, either you and I believe today that all human beings were created equal or we do not. Either we believe that God endowed all human beings with inalienable rights or we do not. But if these are universal beliefs that inform our declaration of independence and our constitution, then we cannot pick and choose to whom these truths apply. Race, ethnicity, religion, geographic boundary, these things cannot determine whom God loves. Thus race, ethnicity, religion, or geographic boundary cannot determine who we treat with respect and with dignity. Too many examples in the history of our world where self-righteousness led to widespread injustices and even genocide. Walk with me, my friends, recall the Spanish crown of the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Consider how they perverted Catholicism. They perverted Catholicism with their colonization of the Americas. The lenses of self-righteousness blinded them to their own greed, to their own violence, to their own avarice. Religion of self-righteousness calls them to regard indigenous native populations as simply heathens in need of control and containment, not humans endowed with dignity and precious personality. This is why over the span of 50 years, 70 million native peoples were exterminated across the Americas. Self-righteous religion will do that. 
Recall the imprisonment of some 120,000 people of Japanese descent during World War II. It didn't matter that over 60% were American citizens. The federal government imprisoned the Constitution and arrested human compassion. Fear masquerading as self-righteousness left a lasting stain on this nation. This is why we should always remember the later words of Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Words that should serve as a guide and a warning for us today. Grave threats to liberty often come in times of urgency. They come at times when constitutional rights seem too extravagant to endure. Yet these are the moments when we must cling more closely to our core principles as a nation and as a people. Oh, consider. Consider how groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS have perverted Islam to their own bigoted ends. They're so certain that they carry the will of God and they're so sure of their righteousness. They're so certain, they're so sure this is what can lead them to murder, terrorize, and destroy any and everything in the name of their hateful and malevolent God. As novelist Anne Lamont once put it, you and I can safely assume that we've created God in our own image when it turns out God hates all the same people that we do. This, this is why I fear the clear and present danger in our nation today is not that we will be overrun by radical religious terrorists from somewhere else. My fear is that we Americans will become more and more like the very people that we seem to fear. Our self-righteousness will blind us to our own pathologies. Our self-righteousness will cause us to misdirect our fear and thus misdiagnose our own failures as a nation. For example, does anybody find it odd that the same week that the president signs an executive order to restrict entry from seven Muslim countries in the name of keeping violence out. The United States House of Representatives voted to ease regulation on background checks for gun buyers with mental illness. Blinded by self-righteousness. Or oh, does anybody else find it a little strange that the same president that is promoting this quote-unquote neo-Nazi American first agenda is expected to sign this week a Senate approval that will allow coal mining de debris to be dumped into American streams? Blinded by self-righteousness. Oh, but I hear the voice of Isaiah saying this morning, you are a nation of religiosity, but you're too self-righteous. You're a nation of fasting, but you do as you please. You've become a nation of quarreling and strife. You cannot expect to do as you do today and expect your voice to be heard from on high. Sound the trumpet, Isaiah. Let them know they're baptizing their own bull. 
But I'm glad this morning. I'm glad this morning when we continue through the 58th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah turns from condemnation to recommendation. Oh, the prophet tells the people that you know the kind of faith that God wants from us. God wants us to fast in order that we might feed the hungry. God wants us to pray so that we might see the refugee and house them. God wants us to worship so that we might see the naked and offer them some clothes. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing, your miracle will quickly appear. If you want a miracle, then you build it. Build it by one generous, compassionate, kind act of justice at a time. This Oh, this is an important point that I took away from a powerful book that I read this week. This week I read Melissa Fleming's A Hope More Powerful Than the Sea. Fleming, in this text, she provides what many consider the miraculous account of a Syrian refugee by the name of Doa al-Zamal. In 2015, Doa, this 19-year-old, was crammed on a smuggler's boat with over 500 refugees crossing the Mediterranean Sea. The boat was rammed and it was sunk by another ship, and though nearly everyone, including Doa's fiance, perished in the water, Doa remained afloat for four days. She even secured and protected two infants while floating at sea. Many understandably read her story as a miracle. I would say it's definitely a tale of the human spirit, resilience, and of sacrifice, but there were other parts of the story, my friends, that caught my attention. For long before Doa's miraculous feet at sea, Doa tells the story of so many other small miracles that she experienced after fleeing war-torn Syria. Small, small but powerful random acts of kindness that literally kept her family afloat for three to four years. There were, for example, Egyptian families. Egyptian families, when they fled Syria and landed in Egypt, they were Egyptian families that would come by their home with food and blankets, realizing that the family was in need. There was a hotel owner. There was a hotel owner in the coastal Egypt that allowed Syrian refugees to live in his hotel rent-free during the winter months. There was the shop owner. The shop owner that gave young Doa a job and paid her wages even when she was sick. And there was numerous other occasions, numerous other occasions when someone simply affirmed their humanity and dignity by saying a kind word or offering a friendly smile. Despite her family's pain, Despite their suffering, despite having to abandon their home in Syria, other Muslims stepped in and stepped up at their door with the hands of hospitality. Others stepped up to offer a spirit of grace. And I want to argue this morning that these kind of acts represent and constitute the true miracles of her life. They represent the miracles of all of our lives. Many of you, 
I've talked to so many students, they want to know what you can do in the face of seemingly overwhelming injustice. Many of you feel helpless, like our nation has become a cruel and twisted reality show. But I'm here to say this morning, what we're witnessing across this country offers us reason for hope. Watching lawyers turn airport terminals into law offices on behalf of total strangers. Witnessing entire neighborhoods turn out to greet their neighbors as at airports across this country. These are the acts from which miracles are built. These are the acts from which our healing can emerge. My friends, please go out this week. Spend this week building a miracle. Go speak to the person you may have otherwise ignored. Donate to a cause that you have not traditionally supported. Go volunteer your services to an organization that's doing the heavy lifting among the impoverished, among refugees and or immigrant communities. In other words, in the words of Jesus, let your light shine. For with each act of grace, with each act of care, with each act of compassion, what are we doing? I'm crazy enough to believe that we're building miracles. Let the church say amen.